turn together in God's Word now to Jonah, chapter 2, the passage we read earlier. Jonah, chapter 2. I wonder this morning, are you stuck in a rut? Maybe you feel really like it this morning. You just look at your life and it just seems like this endless cycle of um, repetitive things and it just feels like it's so hard to get out of the rut that you're in. Maybe spiritually, you're longing for more of God, but there just seems to be, uh, you just seem to not get able to shake yourself out of it. You want more of his nearness, and yet he just feels distant. Uh, you struggle maybe with sin or habits, and he just seems like you just can't seem to shake it. Maybe an attitude that you have, or a bitterness that you're holding on to, or something that you struggle with, and you just think you've got a, a, a hold on it, and then it just seems to overwhelm you again. Maybe you just feel frustrated with yourself. You say things that hurt other people or do things that hurt others, and you just seem powerless to change. Just end up in the same spot all the time. And you feel just like you're losing all hope. You know, you just get cynical when you think, well, there's never going to be any change. This is just how it is. We lose hope, we lose joy, we lose sight of any light in the darkness. Well, this morning, we come to a passage that offers us glorious hope. Whether you're a Christian and you feel in that rut, whether you're not believing and you feel just you're stuck in this darkness, well, there's a God today who wants to help us and transform our darkness to light, our hopelessness to hope, and to bring us out of the rut uh, to point us to the great news of Jesus. And it all comes in this passage in Jonah, where Jonah is in the belly of the fish. Now, last time we looked at Jonah, remember Jonah in chapter 1, verse 2, was told by God, go to Nineveh, go to the Assyrians, go to the enemy of God's people and warn them of my judgment to come. But Jonah ran away. Jonah didn't want to do that. And the reason he didn't want to do that wasn't just because he was scared of the enemy, but chapter 4, verse 2, remember, tells us that he didn't want to go because of this. Lord, is is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The reason Jonah didn't want to go to the Assyrians is because he hated them and he didn't want them to know God's grace. He didn't want them to be forgiven. He wanted them to face God's judgment. And so when God says, go and warn them, he knew that God would forgive because he's a forgiving God and he didn't want them to be forgiven. So here is Jonah, we see he is quite a self-righteous prophet, looking down on other people, saying they don't deserve God's kindness. And in chapter 2, we see really he's in in the pits, he's in the darkness. But by chapter 3, look at the difference. There, he is told exactly the same thing in chapter uh, 2, as in chapter 1, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, that message I tell you. But this time, verse 3, Jonah arose and went. So something happens um, between chapter 1 and 3 that helps Jonah to go, helps Jonah to listen. So God does a work in Jonah in the belly of the fish that transforms him from disobeying God, from wandering from God, from being down in this rut into following him and doing what he says. So what happens? What happens in the belly of this fish? Well, he has this awakening, really, this reviving. He, he encounters the grace of God. Because look at verse 9. This is where it's all leading. This is kind of the, um, uh, the headline of this chapter. The end of verse 9, it says, 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is a God who saves. One theologian said that's the whole Bible summed up. That's the high point. That's what the Bible's all about. It's all about God saving. He does the saving. He does the rescuing. He realizes the wonder of God's grace. Not that he can save himself, but that God can save him. And that's at the heart of his transformation. God had a work to do in Jonah before taking him to Nineveh. And he does that work, we see, in this chapter. This is how, um, uh, uh, I've forgotten his first name now, Sinclair Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson puts it in his commentary. He says this, Jonah needed to feel the grace of God towards himself before he would be a suitable minister of that grace to the people of Nineveh. He needed to encounter God's grace afresh so that he could minister it to other people. Now, maybe this morning, uh, we feel like that. I need to visit and hear the grace of God afresh so that I can be used by God. And maybe even for the first time you think, well, what is the grace of God? What does that mean? What does it mean that salvation belongs to God? Well, there's three um, kind of stages we're going to look at uh, this morning to help us understand, well, how can we have this awakening? How can we know this grace in our lives? Firstly, we need to be humbled by grace. We need to be humbled by grace. So um, Jonah's told to go to Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction. Um, instead, it's like us being told, you know, I want you to go to Scotland. Instead, we go to, you know, southern Spain. Going in totally the opposite direction. Uh, and Jonah then is on this boat. And he's on this boat. And as he's on the boat, uh, there's God sent this storm. That's what we looked at last week. This storm was sent. Uh, and Jonah knows he's the problem. He knows the storm has been sent because he's going away from God. And so Jonah was cast into the sea. He said, throw me in. And as he's thrown in, the storm is ceased. And then, verse 17, the Lord appoints this great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, just to pause there a minute, sometimes we might think of that and think, you know, when you listen to that story in Sunday school, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, fine. But as you're an adult, you start to think, hang on a minute. Did that really happen? Can we really believe that? Well, you know, there's lots of, there's, there's, there's examples of similar things happening to people in, in history, apparently in the 19th century, something similar happened. But to be honest, if God can bring a person back from the dead, if a God is a God of miracles, then appointing a large fish to kind of keep ma a man alive in the sea is a miracle. You know, we have to kind of uh, admit that, well, well, either he's a God of miracles or he's not. And this is a miracle that kept Jonah alive. The book isn't written in a way of a, of a like a legend. So it's written as if it really happened, real place he was sent to, real place he was going, and God rescued him. So God can do miracles. That's, that's what we believe, and that's what the Bible says. Uh, so here he is, Jonah. He's sinking to the bottom of the sea. In fact, he is realizing that he's drowning. Look at verse, verses 3 to 7. Listen to these words. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. And then he says, look at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. Here he is, Jonah is drown drowning. Look at verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He felt like he was going to his death. Verse 7. My life was fainting away. Jonah was helpless. Jonah was sinking. And he had no hope at all. And you know, he saw at this point, this is what I deserve. Like, I've been fleeing from God. I've been going from him, from the giver of life, and I've been going away. I've been going towards my death, and I'm getting 
what I'm choosing. This is what I deserve. He was expecting death. You know, he hadn't been to Sunday school and known, knew the story of Jonah. He wasn't expecting, it's okay, God's going to send a big fish. He didn't know that. He was on his way to the bottom. See, when he was thrown out of the boat, the, the sailors threw him out of the boat. But look what verse 3 tells us. You cast me into the deep. He knew that this was from God, that he was facing what he deserved for his rebellion. And verse 6, we see that word again, which we saw all the way through chapter 1, I went down. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 3, 5, uh, we see this word down. He went down and down, and he was facing what he deserved, the judgment of wandering from God, the consequences of what he'd done. And it was at this point where he was kind of sinking to the bottom that he saw his failure, he saw his need, and this kind of proud, self-righteous prophet who didn't want to offer forgiveness or grace to anybody else suddenly starts to see, I'm, I'm facing what I deserve here. Now, it's quite a dark start, but this is where we need to start to, to know and be amazed by the grace of God. We need to be humbled. A Christian is somebody, that's where they start, is somebody who's helpless and says, God, I can't do this on my own. Spiritually, I am helpless. Now, it's quite a radical thing to say that because uh, in our day and age, we're told, no, you can, you can do it. You know, just, just try a bit harder. The power is in you. But actually, the Bible says, no, we, we can't do it. You know, so people who uh, maybe wouldn't be religious at all would say, well, I don't need God. I can do it on my own. I just need to work harder. But even on the other end of the spectrum as well, you've got religious people who would say, I can do this on my own. I just need to work harder to get God to love me more. And if I do that, then... So both sides uh, of the spectrum there, we've got really um, people saying, I can do it. I don't need God. But the Bible teaches something totally different. It says we're helpless. We cannot reach God. We can't do it on our own. And don't we know that? Doesn't that make sense of our life? At the start of the week, do you ever say, this week I am not going to do that. I am not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to say those things. I'm not going to end up there. And then what happens? By the end of the week, we've done it again. And we're really good at blaming other, reason, other people for our problems, aren't we? Well, I'm like this because of this. I do this because of this. And, and we end up kind of passing the buck without realizing, I just can't do it. Whatever the mess of my background that factors into my life today, whatever's going on, the problem is me. I'm helpless. The problem is my heart. And we can see that in ourselves, can't we? But can't we see that in the world around us? You know, we're falling into the same problems time and time again. Whether we're, on, um, whether we're a Labour government or a Conservative government, uh, as the years and the cycles go around, we end up doing the same things, making the same mistakes. We're having similar wars and battles. Whatever the politics, there's a problem that's deeper. And we can't seem to solve it, however advanced we are in, with technology and all the other things. We're helpless. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he describes spiritually where we stand, spiritually uh, what we're like. And he says this uh, before you're a Christian. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, um, you, uh, you, uh, um, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We followed just whatever was around us. We followed the ways of Satan, and we followed the passions of our flesh. We just did. We, we were just slaves. We were dead, and by nature, children of wrath. 
A Christian isn't somebody who's just decided to have a little bit of God in their life, but someone who has realized before God intervened, we couldn't do a thing to help ourselves. Spiritually, we were lifeless. I wonder, as a Christian this morning, if you're a Christian here, do you realize that before you were a Christian, you couldn't do anything to save yourself? You were totally helpless. You might think, you know, well, I was struggling a bit, and then kind of I put my hand up, and then God kind of saved me. But actually, the the Bible's uh, picture is, no, we're, we're like a dead corpse really at the bottom of the sea, just helpless, lifeless. And if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you're thinking, well, this sounds so pessimistic. This sounds offensive, really, that I, that I can't do anything. But doesn't it make reality of your life, sense of your life? Doesn't it make sense of those times when you get so frustrated with yourself and you just keep making the same mistakes and we can't seem to get ourselves out of it? One um, theologian, Pascal, from the 17th century said this. He said, certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this teaching, this doctrine. Yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we're incomprehensible to ourselves. So unless we understand this, our lives just don't make sense. We can try and ignore it, but we keep coming back to this reality. So we need to be humbled, first of all. If we're going to see how we get out of this rut, how we can uh, have lives that are transformed by God's grace, we need to be humbled and realize, I can't do anything. Jonah here, he was sinking to the bottom. The weeds had wrapped around his head, as it were, and he was dying. And that's us spiritually. Without Jesus, that's us. Secondly, though, we need to be amazed by grace. So Jonah's there, he's run far from God, he's thrown into the sea because he doesn't want it to be anywhere near God, so that's where he ends up. He's going down and down and down, and he goes he does against everything that God said. And maybe you feel a bit like that this morning. Maybe you've just kind of gone far away from God. You've rejected him, you've hardened your heart. And when you realize what, what you deserve from God, suddenly you start to see, dear me, this is, this is harsh. You see, a Christian is somebody who's realized that we deserve, I deserve to face God's judgment. But when we see the darkness that we deserve, it's then that the light shines all the more. Apparently, if you go into a posh um, jeweler's, what they'll do uh, to show you a diamond is they'll get out a black cloth and then they'll put the diamond against the black cloth. I, I haven't been to a posh jeweler's, so I wouldn't know. But that's apparently what they do. Because as you hold the diamond against a black cloth, it's then that you see how bright it shines. Or the darkness, the black cloth of what we deserve for our rebellion against God shines brighter now when we see what we deserve. Because look what, what Jonah tells us, verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Or verse 7, he tells us, my prayer came to you. God heard me. I was helpless, and God heard my cry. Now, this wasn't any kind of just because of his earnestness that did this. Look what verse 6 tells us. Jonah realizes, you brought my life from the pit. You have done this. Kind of you raised my arm, as it were, for me to reach out to you. And then he realizes, verse 9, salvation belongs to God. I can't do this. I'm sinking. I've had it. And then Jonah realizes that God has to save him. There's no other hope except for God. In the rest of Ephesians 2, as you read on, where Paul describes what a Christian is before becoming a Christian, then chapter 2, verse 4, he says this. Even though you were spiritually dead and slaves to the world around and everything else, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. You see, we were dead spiritually, but God intervened by his grace and kindness. He's done it all. He's rescued us all. Um, Spurgeon, who was a 19th century preacher in London, um, many have said he's the greatest preacher there's ever been. Uh, this is how he, when he was thinking about how he became a Christian, he kind of wrote it down. And this is what he, he said. He said, the thought struck me, how did you become a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek. I prayed, I thought. But then I asked, well, how did I come to pray? Well, I prayed because I read the Bible. How did I come to read the Bible? Well, I read them, but what led me to do them, to do that? And in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. He was the author of my faith. So the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I've not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. God, in his grace, um, intervened in this rebellious prophet's life. He was sinking to the bottom, and God saved him. And that is a picture of us spiritually. We are spiritually dead, and God just says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. God will hear your voice. Jonah was running away from God. This morning, are you? We asked this a few weeks ago, but are you running away from God? Maybe in an obvious way in your heart, uh, that you're just going against him. Today, this morning, if you call out to God now, he will hear your voice. If in your heart you say, Lord Jesus, I need you, he will hear you. And when you're weak and when you're helpless, God is willing and God is ready to hear. As one author put it, grace runs downhill. The lower we are, the more aware we are that we need God to intervene. So can I encourage you, if you're feeling in the darkness, if you're feeling like you can't go on, call out to Jesus and he'll hear you. Maybe that you're not a Christian and you need to do that for the first time, but maybe as a Christian, you've just, like Jonah, drifted into a self-righteousness, drifted into thinking, I can do it, I just need to try harder. Just today, this morning, say, I can't do it. Jesus, will you help me? And then we realize, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not down to you, it's down to God. It's not down to what we can do, but what he has done. Now, why is that such good news? Well, if you're a Christian this morning, if you have been rescued by God, and you realize salvation, rescue comes from him, it's not down to you and your efforts. It's not down to your religiosity and your religious actions, and that is wonderful news. It means that God doesn't, didn't love you because you started to turn your life around. Yeah, so um, it's not that God says, oh, oh, well done, you've, you've kind of, you've sharpened up a bit there, you've smartened yourself up, you've, you've pulled your socks up, you've done a bit more, and now I love you. No, 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 God loved you when you were a right mess. God loved you when you've done nothing to deserve it. And because of that, it means you never did anything to earn God's love, which means you can never do anything to lose God's love because he loved you at your worst. He loved you when you were so far away. Do you see the security that brings? Do you see the glorious news of salvation belongs to the Lord? Not salvation belongs to those 
who make an effort and work hard in it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We need to let that truth sink in. And many, for many of us, you might have heard this time and time again, and yet, don't we slip into thinking salvation belongs to me and my hard work? How many of us feel this morning, um, I don't think God loves me as much as he loves that person over there. I don't think God loves me this morning. I, I haven't had a very good week. I'm not good enough. Maybe you think of things you've done and you think, well, I've done this, I've done that. God can't possibly love me now. I've said this, I've been there, I've done that. I, there's no chance. You see what this means? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's of his, all of his grace, all of his love, which means it was never about your work in the first place, never about what you did. And so you're safe and you're rescued by him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm just too bad for God, aren't I? I've heard it countless times. So many people are afraid to come into a building, really, because they say, oh, the roof will collapse on me. What's the idea? That God isn't welcoming to those who fail, but actually he's going to condemn. With the God of the Bible, Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save and to rescue. Maybe you think I'm way too far for God from God. There's no chance. Listen to these words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's done it. He's the one who offers it for free. Nothing we've done, whatever our background, whatever our life, he wants to offer it to us this morning and to you. Jonah was running from God. Maybe you feel like you're doing the same. Jonah then realized that he was facing the judgment he deserved, the storm that had chased him, and then he encountered the grace of God, and he realized that God was running towards him. Now, as we grasp these truths, my prayer is that that makes us want to say hallelujah rejoice that he's done it all i am safe in him and as we realize that that'll transform how we see everything it'll transform our prayer life it'll transform our living for jesus it will transform um, how we see other people we can't look down on anybody because we were at the bottom of the sea dead just like everybody else and god picked us up there but for the grace of god See, we should be amazed by this grace and pray that God, by his spirit, shows us how great he is. So we, we need to be humbled by the grace of God. It's not nice to hear, but when we see that, then we start to see, but God's done it all, which means I am safe and rescued and I'm his forever. And the last thing we need to see is this. We need to see the cost of grace, the cost of grace. So we begin to see something amazing as Jonah starts to grasp what God is doing for him. He's heard my cry. He's rescued me. Salvation is, belongs to the Lord. Uh, but when, in his kind of mess that he's in, as he is aware of his sin and his failure, look where he turns in verse 4. He says this word twice. I shall look upon you in your holy temple. Now, why does he want to go to the temple? In the midst of his mess and all that he's done, why does he want to go there? Well, because he knows that in the temple, as it, went, as it says um, later on, he says as well, uh, verse 7, I want to go into your holy temple. Uh, he knows that's where the sacrifices are made. That's where uh, God offers a, a way to access him. Now, when we go into the, if you imagine we're in the temple, you'd be standing before a big curtain. And behind that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, in this box, is the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments scream at us, you're not good enough. 
you failed you, haven't you? They scream at us. And kind of we want to say, oh, just cover it up. I, I can't approach that. I, I, it kind of leaves me undone. Like, I can't do it. I can't live like that. But God in his kindness on this box has covered it up. And he's covered it with this layer of gold. It's called the mercy seat. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, uh, a sacrifice would be made. An animal would be killed. And the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And it's God's picture to say, look, you can't keep it. But I've provided somebody or something to take your place. The law of the commandments leaves you condemned. You failed. And there needs to be a punishment. But I'm going to provide the sacrifice for you. And so the sacrifice is made and blood is shed on the mercy seat as a picture to say, look, you're now protected from the law. Somebody has taken the punishment you deserve for failing to keep these standards. And now you can have access to God. And Jonah in that moment is thinking, I want to be in the temple. Why? Because I want to know, I want to see the sacrifice that has been made for me. I want to see the blood that has been shed because I have failed. I'm a rebellious. I'm, I'm rebellious. And, and as Jonah is kind of thinking of that, the amazing thing is, whether he's aware of it or not, he is living out what that means for us. In Matthew 12, as we, we've looked at every week, Jonah says this, uh, Jesus says this about Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jesus says, so the Son of Man, that's me, uh, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah was like a picture to us to see how Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is saying, look, Jonah is pointing forward to me, pointing forward to my death and my resurrection. So when we put this together with last week and what we looked at there, think about that again. Here is Jonah on a boat. He is fleeing God. And a storm comes after him because God is angry. This storm approaches. And this storm is there. And Jonah realizes, look, this storm's going to take this ship down. And Jonah's choice is this. It's them or me. Who dies? Either we all die or they die or I die. So Jonah says, throw me into the sea. So the storm then is, uh, overtakes Jonah and swallows him up. And Jonah dies in their place. But Jesus tells us, no, I'm the greater Jonah. So what's going on on the cross? All the deserved rebellion that we face. All the judgment that we face for rebelling against God, for failing him. Jesus came and he said, either you take the punishment or I do. It's them or me. And Jesus on the cross took that rebellion. He was our substitute. He was the greater Jonah. And he faced the judgment we deserve. His blood was shed to cover the law because he took the consequences. And his blood was sprinkled, as it were, on that mercy seat. And on the cross, as Jesus was hurled into the storm of God's wrath against our sin, he became the worst of sinners. In Jesus' storm, there was no rescue for him. He faced the judgment we deserved so that we could know forgiveness. Jesus wasn't shown grace so that we could be shown amazing grace. He was rejected so we could be embraced. He descended to the depths so we could know the heights of heaven. He died in our place and he did that for you because he loves you so much. Now maybe as we think of that, you think like, like piecing all that together might be a lot as we think of the the, the law and the mercy seat and all that. But listen to what the headline is. Jesus died in your place so 
forgive you, you could be forgiven. And the cost of grace was so deep and so big for God that for you, now it's free. He died because he loves you so much. That shows the deep love and mercy of God. This is how Octavius Winslow, a 19th century uh, theologian, put it. The cross of Jesus displays the most awful exhibition of God's hatred of sin, and at the same time, the most majestic manifestation of his readiness to pardon it. Pardon, full and free, is written in every drop of blood that is seen. It's proclaimed in every groan that is heard. O blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God. How glorious, how free, how accessible. Here the sinful, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor, the penniless may come. Here too the weary spirit may bring its burden, broken spirit its sorrow, guilty spirit its sin, the backsliding spirit its wandering. All are welcome here. Have you been running? Come back to Jesus. He's done it all for you. Salvation belongs not to us, but to the Lord. He's done it. As Jonah kind of, as the grace of God dawned on Jonah of what he deserved and what God has done, his heart was changed. He experienced this love. And so what did he do? Well, verse 8, he noticed something. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He realized that those people who worship other gods don't know this grace. He started to think of Nineveh. Maybe he started to think of the sailors that just threw him overboard. And he realized that there's no love like this love. There's no grace like this grace. No one greater, no one more glorious, no satisfaction apart from him. And he wanted then others to know. And so in chapter 3, we're going to see next time, he was ready. The grace of God had now touched his heart and changed him. In chapter 4, we see again that he fails. And we might think, well, what's gone on? But isn't that like us? We're, we're full of contradictions. And we'll get there. But here in this moment, he grasps the grace of God. And he says, I've got to go. There are idols all around that people are worshipping. And they are rubbish. Now this morning, as we think of our hearts and our idols, what are we turning to that are pulling us away from God? Compare them this morning to the grace of God. These idols, these things that we think will satisfy if I just do this, if I just finish this, if I just have this, if I just have a bit more of this, a little less of this, if I just do this, then I'll be sorted. We get it, and it leaves us empty. These idols promise us everything. They take everything, and they leave us really with nothing. Jesus promises you everything, gives you everything, and leaves us full to the brim the living water that will never go thirsty, the bread that fills us up and will never be hungry again. Let's turn from our idols today to Jesus. And the grace of God gives us the power to do that. So this morning, if we're stuck in a rut, what do we do? That's part of the problem, isn't it? We want to do something. Say, what can I do? We need to be humbled. I was reminded as I was preparing for this of Sylvia's, uh, Sylvia Fia's testimony. Remember Sylvia, she died. Uh, one of our members died in the summer of 2022. And she wrote out her testimony in a booklet. And she said this, the Lord saved me the day I gave up. This morning, do you need to give up? Say, God, I can't do it. Just do it afresh this morning. God, help me. 
and you hear your cry. Just come to the end of yourself. And maybe as we do that, we'll see that grace does run downhill. We'll realize we've been trying to do it on our own. And as we are aware that God has worked in our hearts, then we'll be in a position to, to serve others and, and to reach out with this glorious message of grace because we can't look down on anyone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's done it. Run to him. And he did that, and we see that by the cost. It's the death of Jesus on the cross. Thrown into the storm on our behalf. Just hear those words again, uh, as Sylvia said. It's the day I gave up. Maybe today is the day you give up and say, Jesus, I need you. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, let's turn and depend on him. And I pray that as we see that, we'll, we'll be pulled out of the darkness, out of our rut, to say, Jesus, you've done it all. I'm safe in your hands. Now let me live for your glory. Let's pray before we sing our last hymn together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of glorious grace. And we're sorry that so often we try and do things in our own strength and in our own power. We pray, Lord, today you would help us to give up and to call out to you, even from where we are seated now, to say, Lord Jesus, help me. We thank you, Lord, that you hear our cry. We thank you that in our weakness, you are strong. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.